Perhaps you've heard of the Pareto Principle. It's more commonly known as the 80-20 rule. It's that frequently recurring pattern in many facets of life that tells us that 80% of the effects are are typically attributed to only 20% of the causes. So for example, in most societies, 80% of the wealth or land is controlled by the upper 20% of people. Or in most jobs, most people are productively engaged for only about 20% of the time that they are ostensibly working. The other 80% of the time is wasted. Further, in most organizations, about 80% of the work is accomplished by only about 20% of the employees or volunteers. On most corporate sales forces, the upper 20% of salespeople generate 80% of sales revenue. Most businesses receive about 80% of their profits from 20% of their customers. And most receive about 80% of their complaints from 20% of their customers. In sports or fitness, 80% of a person's improvement is typically attributed to only about 20% of their training. All of these are only generalizations, of course. The statistics don't always work out as exactly 80-20, but by and large, this average or something close to it is eerily present across a range of unrelated phenomena. In the spiritual or moral life, I think this is true as well. A relatively small group of people, probably about maybe 20% or so, are exceptional. They are really holy people, clear disciples of Christ. But that still leaves most people, about 80%, a few of whom might be genuinely wicked or depraved, but most of whom are more or less average. They don't necessarily commit great sins, but they habitually struggle their whole lives with smaller ones, often without much apparent progress. They pray some, but they don't really have a strong sense of Christ in their life. They help others here and there, but they don't really live in a self-sacrificial way. They understand their Christian faith somewhat, and they follow some precepts of the church, but they don't really live the gospel in their life in a profound way. The danger, of course, is that we can conflate average with good enough. Often our fallen human nature is such that we take our cues from those around us rather than measure ourselves by the gospel. We imagine that God must necessarily judge us not by divine law, but by the human law of averages. We forget Jesus' command, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The time of Advent that we are embarking on now is often mistaken for merely a looking back, as though Advent were only about trying to relive the suffering of Israel as she awaited for her Messiah 2,000 years ago, evoked in the words of the hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here. Rather, Advent is primarily a time of looking forward, to Christ's coming again. It's a time for embracing the eschatological hope that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. In the gospel, our Lord gives us this image to think about. If the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let the house be broken into. Applying our 80-20 rule, there are some people 
that exceptional 20% or so, whose house would always be secured no matter what. These are the people who are always ready for the second coming because they live their lives in the eternal present. There isn't much difference between who they are and who they were meant to be, so they are ready for the judgment. But for most of us, we'd be able to stop the thief if we knew he was coming. We need to prepare to get ourselves squared away, to work on that gap between our calling and our present reality. But that points to the irony of Christ's metaphor. Thieves, by their nature, do not announce their coming. Neither will Christ. As St. Paul would later tell the Thessalonians, this is precisely the metaphor for Christ's return. He will come like a thief in the night. Jesus tells us that when the judgment, judgment comes, two men will be out in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Now, of course, our goal is to be the one who is taken. But that doesn't mean living our lives as a comparison game, looking at the person next to us in the pew or in the workplace or at the shopping mall and saying, hey, Jesus, I'm sure you'd rather take me than them because just look at that guy. So we're good, right? There's There's neither a quota nor a maximum capacity in heaven. There's no iron law of oligarchy or Pareto principle at work. Salvation is available to all, not merely to the 20%. Yes, it's true that Christ, in his foreknowledge of all things, tells us that, in fact, many will fail to obtain the heavenly kingdom. Many will be called, but few will be chosen. But there's no reason in principle why all cannot be saved, because the tools of our salvation are available to everyone. The church, the sacraments, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, the works of mercy, and the works of charity. If only we will take them up. For St. Paul says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.